has been a long time. How are you, Rachel? I'm doing so well, Alyssa. How are you? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. It's been so long that we've all been through some major life changes. Yes. Yes. Rachel has gotten engaged since the last time we talked. Congratulations, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah. So I literally can't complain. Only up from here. Things are looking good. We are unfortunately scot-free, but we had to get together with the election a week away to talk about <laughs> to talk about this new election year that we're in. And also, I think just to sort through our own um, election anxiety, I'm having high, high election anxiety. How are you doing? I also, yeah, I literally was looking at the calendar today for some work stuff. And I was like, oh, OK, next week is the first full week of March. Oh, oh, it, it's also a Super Tuesday <laughs> next week. It's a Super Tuesday. And Will it be super I, is the question. Look, I need I need to vote. Number yeah, one. I mean, first things I first. Think that's like that is the thing. The headlines around this time always start to be like, oh, turnout's really low and nobody's voting. But I haven't voted and you haven't voted. So neither of us have voted. I don't know. I like to vote at the voting center. I like to go and like get the sticker from them. Yeah. And do, you know, go find a cool new community space in my neighborhood that I've never been to before. You can go anywhere and that's pretty exciting too. There's cool places to vote. There was a voting booth at Ciclovia. Yeah. That was really like a voting center oh. in the street at Ciclovia. It was so great. Right. Yeah, like you're already here enjoying yeah. the sights and the street. Why not vote as well? I just I I am a big procrastinator. So, you know, this multi-week to vote is great, right? There's like a ton of people that don't have the time off from work. There's a million reasons why you wouldn't be able to vote on the day of an election proper. I am a procrastinator. I do everything at the last minute and that's unfortunate, but I will be voting on Tuesday. I'm excited too. And I, like you, love to get the sticker in person. That's what I did as a kid go in the booth with my mom or my grandparents yeah, I like and then to you take get the my sticker. Kids. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it literally builds positivity around the system. It is. So. It's good. And I, I also like something else that really annoys me is that it, in the comparison of calling them early voters, it, you know, they're like, mm. oh, early voters. So yeah, that does <laughs> exist. But that doesn't mean somebody who votes on election day is a late or last minute voter, which is exactly. something that is like fit this label that's been slapped upon people who are just <sighs> voting on election day, which right on time. Yeah. And in honor of this important day we have coming up. Um, we do have LA Forward's Godfrey Plata joining us at the end of this episode for a special election season segment. And we're going to talk through some of the issues and races. We're going to answer questions for each other. I think like it's it's always really exciting to talk to Godfrey because he's so plugged in to mm-hmm. what different groups are organizing around. And just a reminder that ballots are due March 5th. So please please get that percentage up a little bit, even if you are a last minute procrastinator voter (laughs) like us. (laughs) But first, first, we're going to talk about a story that has been dominating the discourse here in LA, I would say weeks, months. And instead of me explaining it, I'm going to actually have Ted Danson explain it. 
The I team and I are working on something, and we can't wait to get it off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> the mayor and I are working on a rapid transit solution for Dodger Stadium. It's a gondola from Union Station, like at a ski resort. Or a theme park. Sometimes a gondola is the fastest way to be transported back to the parking lot when your t-shirt's inappropriate. Gondola's okay. I look forward to seeing that in the year 3000 and never. Actually, RP, we think it'll be ready for the Olympics. Tomorrow, James and I are gonna take the helicopter for an exploratory trip with the director of city planning. I should be wearing a leather jacket for that, right? Oh, you could wear a ball gown if you want. We're just excited to have a mayor who will listen. Okay, so that was a clip from the <laughs> sadly canceled show, Mr. Mayor, which was about being the mayor of Los Angeles. And the show is so good. And why I do miss it a lot is because it did very accurately depict many elements of LA politics. Mm -hmm. But this scene in particular was so completely faithful to what actually was happening. I think people probably watched this and thought it was maybe a fictional mm -hmm. plot point. But everything they're saying is absolutely true. There was a gondola proposed for Union Station. It was a project that has been taken under the wing of Metro's so-called Extraordinary Innovation Department, which is like this uh, I-team that they reference. Um, it's exactly, and they do want it to try to have it done for the Olympics. Um, so it's it's absolutely true, right down to the point where they're just so happy that the mayor is supporting it because our mayor at the time, Eric Garcetti, actually said when it was proposed in 2018 that there would be no problem getting it passed. I am absolutely confident that this will happen. So what did happen mm. these last few weeks? Um, that path seems less clear now for the I-team. Kind of like his uh, presidential run a little clear and confident. <laughs> same time frame, same vibes. <laughs> feeling confident at the time, didn't pan out. So this is like a, a, <laughs> an actual project that has been proposed in 2018. I wouldn't actually say it's it's necessarily like Frank McCourt's idea, but it does come from the first company that proposed it. His son was part of it and they gave a lot of positive statements about it. Frank McCord is, of course, the um, former owner of the Dodgers, who doesn't own the Dodgers anymore, but still owns a stake in the parking lots that surround Dodger Stadium. And how this was kind of spun was that this 1.2 mile gondola is going to connect Union Station and Dodger Stadium and make this zero emissions pathway to get people to the games. And now the nonprofit that's taking charge of it is actually called zero emissions transit. <laughs> Which I, they're just like, in case there's any question, that's what we're going to name it. And at the beginning, like I definitely found out about this around that time, like 2018. Um, it seemed like one of those things that you hear about and it doesn't really go anywhere. But it's mm -hmm. the reason it, we're still talking about it is because Metro did agree to do the environmental impact work for it. So they are going through Metro, even it's not a Metro project, but they're going through Metro to get things like the environmental impact report cleared. Um, and meanwhile, the costs have gone exponentially <laughs> up um, like a gondola. Um, so <laughs> we were starting with a conversation about it being like 300 million. Now we're saying more like 600 million. And of course, the longer we delay, the costs are probably going to go even higher. But I just mm -hmm. want to stress that it's like Metro is 
they are using their time and their staff to work on this, which that is a little bit upsetting, I think, to a yeah, lot of people that's who a are resource. like, you could be working on something else that, you know, might make the buses that exist go faster, for example. <laughs> um, but it's not publicly funded. It's not public money. It's not, it's not a public project. It's a private project that Metro has to make and Metro and other agencies have to make decisions about because it is being built on city land as a transportation system, et cetera. Um, what was your thought, Rachel, when you first, what, what did you first find out about the gondola? Yeah, probably also in 2018, because I remember the connection of like, okay, 10 years until the Olympics. Um, I thought this was meant to be a no build Olympics. That was how the Olympics was sold to the city, that there would be no building. We already have infrastructure like stadiums, um, a more not perfect, but a more robust bus and subway system than we did in 84, of course. Um, and so this was meant to be like kind of the follow-up to 84 here. We don't need to build anything. Um, this sounds a lot like building something for the Olympics. Um, <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I thought it was a joke a la a musk tunnel under the city or what have you. Like I, I mean, didn't think... also wanted to try to build to Dodger Stadium. What is it with them? They all think they can yes. solve our Dodger Stadium <laughs> problem. When the the solve is right is right there. We have it. Um they're called buses. But yeah, I I did not think we would be in this place six years later. Like like actually taking public comment. Um, and debating it in any capacity because like on its face, it is a deeply unserious solution to any problem unless you're in Aspen or Vail. So I'm at a loss, to be frank with you. Like this whole thing is ridiculous to me. And there are, I think I wrote about it like not then, but like a few years after um, when it had still really not gone anywhere. I mean, it, it it's not that useless of an idea because it is used in some places as transit. You know, there's a lot of um, cities that have incorporated it into their transit systems, these either tramways or gondolas. Roosevelt Island's a good example. Um, there's one in Portland. Um, there's a lot of them in like South American cities. And one other reason why they're really popular there is one because they're built in places where you don't really want to widen roads or or build mm -hmm. roads at all um you don't want to tear down like historic or old buildings and to the Vale and aspen comment um this, sometimes they're used in like a lot of, i've been like in a lot of european places they put them mm -hmm. in like a sensitive alpine environment to make sure that they you know aren't like trampling uh, up a hillside uh in the alps um, because it does have a smaller footprint on the ground than, say, like the 10 lane entrance to the stadium <laughs> that you sure. have to drive up. Um, but what it's not great for is, and this is, you know, what many experts told me when I was reporting this story, they're not good for what are called crush load uh, situations, which is mm -hmm. if you've been to a Dodger game and tried to get out of the parking lot, <laughs> um, that is what this this use case is. And they keep trying to say, you know, it can handle the crowds and it's going to take a certain amount of cars off the road. But we already have, like you said, a really good solution. The Dodger Express is cheap 
and it's flexible. You can add more buses if all of a sudden a bunch more people show up. It's free if you want a ticket. It could certainly be better if it was something mm-hmm. like a Hollywood Bowl shuttle, um, which yeah. those come from all over the county, and there is mm-hmm. so much fewer cars like going to the Hollywood Bowl for for events. And also, the city could do a much better job of making literally the most basic improvements um, <laughs> to Dodger Stadium. Like I walk there all the time. I walk up there. It doesn't, you know, it's it's not the worst experience, but it could be. It could would take so little to make it a truly great experience to walk or bike, mm-hmm. including like incentivizing people to do so. So what are the major concerns that we're hearing? Now we have like a huge coalition, Stop the Gondola Coalition. I I don't even think we've ever talked about this on the show because I I honestly thought it would go away. I just thought forever there'd be something that would trip it up. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. Um, And so that was obviously our bad, right? Because things like this get passed when no one is talking about it um, (laughs) and no one is like, so I'm really happy for the folks at Stop the Gondola and all of the community members that have not taken this um, lightly. Um, But there are three main concerns that I can see um, and that I think have been outlined by many people. One on the face of this, this is an unnecessary vanity project uh, for rich people. I totally take your point, Alyssa, that like there are instances where gondolas are useful and great. And I think in places that have better transit systems and robust transit systems than we do, places like London that do have like aerial transit, they also have frequent <laughs> and consistent Underground buses trans- and subways un- un- and everything. Transit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they have unaerial transit as well. So like if LA ever gets to a place where like I can step outside and get a bus within even five minutes and then get to my destination within 30, fine, build gondolas all over if you want. But like that, you know, it's like a secondary transit thing, in my opinion. Anyway, um, so the second concern um, is the idea that it will not cost taxpayers any money. Um, They said that about 84 Olympics as well. And we know that it did cost us money. And many times when they tell us things will not cost us money, it does end us end up costing us money um, at some point down the line. You already mentioned that like the starting budget in theory was 300 million. It's now closer to 600 million. If we ever get to a point where we're starting to build it, will that be closer to like double that amount? Who's to say? And then also you have to maintain it. Like it's not going to run perfectly forever. There will be maintenance costs tied to it. And the third main concern is what's next? So I highly doubt that we build this gondola And it literally is only used for Dodger games and that it just sits empty and unused for the rest of time. So what else are we going to be building at Dodger Stadium? What other stressors are we going to put onto um, the community surrounding Dodger Stadium in order to make the private funders of this gondola think it's worth it to invest all this money? Because no one's just investing this much money in any project without trying to get their money back. And without trying to line their pockets further. So, right. And the argument is that this is like this Trojan horse for development, that Frank McCourt wants to make money developing the parking lots. And there has been, there, there's been some hints at like maybe adding a little bit more to the stadium to make it, like you said, like a, a daily 
uh, mm-hmm. destination with a museum. I think like having more restaurants that are open all the time, like um, none of those things seem exactly like bad. Um, sure. But yeah. they haven't been like very forthcoming when reporters have asked, for example, exactly what you're saying, like trying to talk to Frank Bacourt specifically about <laughs> why, the, how or why this ties into those plans. And it's also very weird, like the Metro meeting the other day, they called it like a daily transportation system. Right. But it's it hasn't been made clear. And of course, like you could use it to get to the park. Like that's a it's very hard to get to that park, especially from mm-hmm. right below you where you are in Union Station. Um and so it's a little bit strange that they wouldn't just be like, yes, we want this to be open every day and here's the strategy and here, mm-hmm. you know, at least at least just be honest about it. Um I think yeah. like the bigger the bigger concern about the development side of it, you know, going back to the history of how people were displaced from Chavez Ravine, public housing was supposed to be built. It wasn't built. Mm -hmm. The land was given, basically just given to the Dodgers. um, And that all needs to be fixed by the city and addressed in a way that it hasn't been done. And maybe building public housing including for the families that were displaced. And that could be one way to solve the problem. You know, I don't want it to be a parking lot. I don't want our second largest city park to be, have this giant asphalt like landing pad. (laughs) Um, But I also don't really think this is going to solve the problem of not getting a bunch of people to drive there unless we do a lot more work, which, which we could. So and that's that's one of the yes. concerns too is that people will drive just to ride the gondola. Hello, like I don't understand the the thinking behind this. Like, okay, we'll build a gondola and magically thousands of people will not use their cars to get to Dodger Stadium. No, babe, they're going to use their car to get to Union Station. Like, what are you talking about? Like having the ticket in your hand does not like transport you immediately into a gondola cart. I feel like I'm going out of my mind right now. Like it doesn't make I mean, any there, sense. There are studies on how many people use like transit for their entire trip for the Dodger Express. And it, you know, mm-hmm. people are actually doing that. There's actually another Dodger Express too, Great. which like no one ever talks about. There's one from the, the South Bay um, that picks you up on the, <laughs> by the Silver Line. Um, and those people really dedicated. Thank you for not driving all the way from there. That's great. Um, but it it is a different I mean, I don't know. Are they attracting transit users in the same way? Like people who are like dedicated, you know, bus riders or or how do people find out about the Dodger Express? Mm-hmm. Like, is it just because it's free? Like, it, I guess the the gondola, they've said it could be free for people who have tickets. But then what about yeah. like employees? Like are employees of Dodger Stadium, like what's the plan for those people? Is this going to make their life easier? And then your point too about there's a stop halfway through in Chinatown, Mm-hmm. A lot of people are concerned that people are just going to park, not even at Union Station, and go park in the Chinatown neighborhoods and ride from yeah. there. Um, and so there's a whole question of of really like, is this solving any problem or is it just introducing more of them to a, a neighborhood that honestly has been severely mm-hmm. impacted by, you know, not just God. Dodger Stadium, but like there's multiple freeways here. There is mm-hmm. a lot of displacement happening um, there's yes. a, a business district in Chinatown that oh has God. a lot of vacant storefronts and and could use foot traffic, but is this the way to do it? So I think like there's 
many, many, many concerns. And in the midst of all this, um, we find out that there's actually not been a traffic study for Dodger Stadium since the 90s. <laughs> like, what is this? Literally since I was a baby. <laughs> <laughs> like, I kind of just thought that these studies were regularly updated. Like, right. I've never really thought about the cadence of a traffic study. I just assumed that we were doing it, I don't know, yearly? Like, I... I, I just, you know, as the population of L.A. has continued to grow as much as it has since I was a kid, but certainly in the last 10, 20 years, like, why weren't we doing these types of studies, especially to a tourist destination? Like, is there a reason why one hasn't been done or it just hasn't been done? I think because we give a big pass to these giant magnets for cars in our cities and we don't think we have to do anything differently. I mean, they're, unless you're like really forced to and they might be forced to do something like mm -hmm. this um, to, you know, to mitigate it, um, you don't have to. So it was really good to hear from Anissa Hernandez, who's the um, council member for CD1, represents this area. You know, she did this motion at the city level that was basically instructing the city departments to study the alternative of a gondola because there actually has been, there's like a very small mention of some of the alternatives in the EIR and the <laughs> Environmental Impact Review. It's just kind of like, it's a, such a long document that bless you if you could even find it. But but there isn't like a, a city position or city data or city departments chiming in to say, actually, we looked at this really closely and here's a way that we could reduce the number of cars to this giant stadium in the in the middle of a park also, which is just, you know, we want to also reduce trip car trips to that park all the time too. We don't want people driving mm -hmm. through Allegiant Park. I love her quote and she's talking about, you know, what Metro is basically asking of the residents um, who are going to be living close to this new piece of transportation. Metro is asking them to absorb the impact of constructing a gondola that would fly just feet over their homes and fundamentally change the landscape of their neighborhoods without ever demonstrating that this is the most effective and efficient way to mitigate stadium traffic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like, shouldn't we mm -hmm. at least start there before we yeah. um, fire up the old gondola maker? <laughs> so going back to what has happened in the last few weeks as this kind of reached this fever pitch, there was a Metro board meeting uh, for a committee on February 14th, which was, was supposed to be a vote to approve the EIR. There were so many people giving public comment. There were just people talking for hours. And Hilda mm -hmm. Solis, who's the county supervisor also on the Metro board who represents the same area around Dodger Stadium, introduced a motion with 31 demands um, that she had before the project could move forward. This was also signed by Karen Bass, who is Metro board chair at the moment. And that those demands, that motion kind of went with the EIR over to the full board the following week. And then we heard even more public comment. A lot of the same people, <laughs> they're like just regulars <laughs> at this, this these Metro meetings. Um, and, and again, like a very passionate for and against, I would say, and probably about evenly split um, yeah. and really just like the, well, some of the most engagement I have seen on, on an issue 
at a, at a Metro meeting. Um, let's talk about these demands, 31 demands. I mean, that seems like a lot. No, I love it. I'm calling it the 31 theses in my head um, <laughs> because they're like fantastic. I mean, you know, you're reading through them and you're like, good point, good point, good point. Um, which I guess, um, like we'll talk about later, um, agreements like this are not super common, but they do exist. But I think you pointed out one of the important ones is that, um, we need something put in place to finance the gondola in case it fails. Um, and also work to support small businesses in Chinatown impacted by the construction and operation of the gondola. So to me, that's like obviously very important. There's other really important points here about requiring 25% of any housing built in the parking lot of Dodger Stadium to be affordable. And she also references the Intuit Dome in Inglewood um, and the subsequent affordable housing requirements there. Um, and I also really like this point about the permanent expansion of the Dodger Express, Alyssa. Uh, how, what are your thoughts on that? It's sneaky. I mean, I love it. it I thought it was pretty sneaky because it's kind of as a backstop, right? So it's saying, it actually says, the language says, you know, if the gondola is not operational by the 2028 Olympics, ZET or ZET, what are we calling it? ZET um, <laughs> will compensate Metro for any costs related to buses to be used. So number one, like even if they don't finish it by the Olympics, which I kind of can't really see happening at this point anyway, yeah. um, they're basically going to get buses out of it from that from the gondola developers. And then they also have to pay for a permanent expansion of the Dodger Express forever, I guess, as long as the Dodgers are playing there. Um, but what you're also doing is you are funding the competition. You are basically funding another alternative um, for people to get there that your own gondola is going to be competing with. So I found that very, is that an incentive to make the gondola like very efficient? Um, is it giving people more options, which will take even more cars off the road? You know, that I thought that was like one of the most um, interesting. <laughs> yeah. And again, I want to point out that she literally references LA 28 in here. And again, the entire selling point of LA 28 was that it was a no build, that the games would just come and be held here without any stress on our communities. And what do we have here? We like already have speculative displacement of elders in Chinatown, of small businesses in Chinatown, in the hopes that this gondola will be built in time for 28. And so what are we supposed to tell those people? Oh, sorry, we thought it was no builds. Um, it's upsetting. Uh, Salise just really coming out strong um, with very um, aggressive language, um, mm -hmm. kind of forcing this developer to make it right. I mean, they've been going to the in the communities. They've been going to local events. They've been uh, talking to a lot of these nonprofits and, and other groups and advocacy groups um, trying to win them over. And, you know, she's saying everything you've done is is not good enough. Yeah. No. So what Salisa is introducing here is these are used a lot of times, usually for big developments, but this is quite a bit bigger, I would say, than than a mm -hmm. lot of them. But this is what we call 
community benefit agreements. Can you explain, Rachel, what a community benefit agreement is? Yes. So in theory, um, a community benefit agreement. (laughs) (laughs) Caveat, in theory. Yes, caveat. In theory, a community benefit agreement is meant to be an agreement between developers of, you know, whatever project, a stadium, a complex of housing and retail, um, or in this case, a gondola, um, an agreement between the developer of that type of project and the capital C community um, in terms of what the developer um, will give up in order to satisfy the needs of the community. So it can be anything from a certain percentage of this building will be affordable housing, or um, we will only hire people from this area to work inside of this stadium. If you want to do a deeper dive into what CBAs are, and I definitely think that you should, um, No Olympics LA released a study three years ago that is super um, timely for us now that seeks to reframe um, what CBAs are and reframes them as less about what a developer is giving up and more about what communities have to surrender. And I think most importantly, pointing out that alternatives to CBAs do exist and that gentrification is not inevitable. Um, And I think even just, you know, the study asks or poses the question of what do we even mean by community? Who do we mean by community? Because earlier you said nonprofits talking to developers um, and these developers talking to nonprofits. Um, nonprofits don't always necessarily have community in mind. Um, folks are not necessarily living in the communities that they are supposed to be advocating for. Um, and they're less a community member and more just kind of someone that like might happen to work in a specific area. Um, so I definitely think like just the study posing that question of what do we mean and who do we mean by community is super important. Um, and this No Olympic study accurately points out that there's little to no research to show the extent to which CBAs empower communities and residents near whatever development we're talking about, which is pretty wild. Um And another stat from this study that I really, really want to highlight is that from 2000 to 2018, neighborhoods with community benefits agreements underwent an increase in median household income and average gross rent at a rate noticeably greater than the city of L.A. as a whole. Mm -hmm. Um, So we just are seeing a bust in gentrification, a bust in rent, and all of that infects the community around it. Um, That looks like displacement. And with displacement, we see a rise in policing. And policing and displacement impact communities of color way more. And so again, we just see the ways in which like CBAs are really not doing much for us, y'all. And we can't continue to let them be used as a carrot to sell our communities out. Like we just, we can't afford to do that anymore. Right. I mean, there's some pretty good examples, too, of especially when the benefit agreements rely on the developer giving money to the city to do things. Um, It's not even guaranteed Mm -hmm. that the city will do them, which is just comical. So it's like, you please give us money so we can make this neighborhood (laughs) better or, you know, improve the area around this project. There's a the the USC village um, that like giant 
complex, like just adjacent to the USC campus that looks like Harry Potter village. Um, <laughs> the university entered in this agreement with the city and they got a lot of money out of them to do things like local hire and, you know, other, other things. So there was a story about it, like looking back at how well um, the village, you know, did for the neighborhood. And they gave, USC gave LADOT money to finish a bike lane and they had just never finished it and they had no plans to do it. So they, the city itself can't be held accountable to deliver these things. So how can we possibly um, expect yeah. the developers to be giving money? Another really good example is Target Husk, one of our favorite, um, one of our favorite <laughs> developments. <laughs> uh, the Target that took ten years to get finished due to a lot of legal challenges from the neighborhood and. The city actually had negotiated a deal with local residents to add things like I think like a daycare center was part of it. There were all these different things that were supposed to be Mm. included in the building. And after like so many holdups and lawsuit challenges, I think they ended up just scrapping everything and settling. And now there's like a footlocker and like a floor (laughs) of empty retail spaces and the Mm. world's Mm. kind of worst target. Um, so, and then there's another perfect example, you know, I, I don't, I don't know for sure what kind of benefits agreement, if any were entered into, but we have this graffiti ghost tower now in downtown LA and Solis like references this in her remarks, which is so funny. Um, but we have to wonder like, what if, you know, you know, they say they're going to put all these guardrails in place and make sure that, uh, you know, they'll be responsible for cost overruns. And, but what if it loses its financing and it's, you know, it gets about mm-hmm. halfway finished and there's just these towers, um, yeah. and like cut down trees and, uh, you know, it's just kind of like hanging over the, <laughs> the park, at least a historic park. Um, we could end up with the same thing. Uh, but it's like the ghost gondola, graffiti ghost gondola, which would actually be pretty cool. Actually, that's cool. You should do actually, that. Actually, that would be cool. <laughs> it's just as cool as the graffiti ghost tower is. But this, exactly. since we're talking about downtown now and CD14, this leads me to the best argument against community benefits agreements that we have. Community benefits can be bribery. <laughs> yeah, old friend, foe of the show, Jose Wizar was recently sentenced to 13 years for his sweeping pay-to-play scheme, 1.5 billion in bribes from developers. He created a community benefits fund for all these mega projects that went directly to his own office. (laughs) So it wasn't even going to like DOT. It didn't go to like an affordable housing fund. And then he also got rid of a lot of the promised affordable housing in some of these developments that like had been a contingency as part of these deals. I mean, it just depends who's in control of this. It could end up just the same. Honestly, that's cool. <laughs> like, I just like, wow, no like problem. we're really, but I think it underscores the fact that like literally no one is keeping, is keeping tabs on these CBAs. Nobody is checking in, seeing how that agreement is going. There's no way to hold city officials accountable, developers accountable, these nonprofits that sell out the communities. They 
pretend to advocate for accountable. Like there's no accountability is the whole point. And yeah. great that they came down, you know, so hard on Weezar. But like the calls coming from inside the house, guys. And we don't want like like great for Solis to be like listening. And I'm I'm glad they they are listening to all the people who came and gave comment. Councilmember Hernandez came and, and gave comment. You know, that was really mm-hmm. something too. We don't normally see this level of engagement from the council member unless they're directing the the funds to their own um, council Mm -hmm. bank account or sometimes their own personal bank account. Um, (laughs) We don't want 31 bullet points on a checklist. We want actually good projects to be proposed by Metro. And Mm -hmm. I want to give a huge shout out to Janice Hahn, Supervisor Hahn, who's on the Metro board as well, And she straight up says she does not like the project and she was the only one to abstain. They did vote, vote it through to approve the EIR, which is just a kind of a procedural thing. There's going to be more approvals and we'll talk about that in a second, but like she works her butt off every year to get Dodger Express money, including from the South Bay. And I just wanted to play this clip of her. You know, she's the only like person who I think has a real conscience about what this is going to mean and how Metro is going to be seen as accountable, even if they're not necessarily accountable. I'm just going to say, I don't love this project. Um, I, I know we're not, we're not supposed to clap. I I really never have. Um, And I was, uh, I was frustrated that Metro even got thrown into it. Right. I didn't, it wasn't our project. We're not paying for it. We are doing staff time, but we're supposed to get reimbursed. I never wanted this to, to have anything to do with this. But today, you know, seeing what, what uh, Supervisor Solis has been able to do with the fact that we were sort of a reluctant uh, partner in this, you've taken it and actually turned it on its 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 head, its end, its whatever. Um, and and the developer will probably rue the day that they they got Metro involved. So shout out to Supervisor Han. That was I think kind of brave <laughs> in a way. Yeah. I mean, because now what happens is Metro has to actually approve the project, and it also has to go to the city because it's using the land of the city. Um, it has to go to state parks for approval because it flies over a state park. Um, it has to go to Caltrans for approval because it is going over a freeway. And it has to go actually to the feds, to the um, Federal Highway Administration, because it goes over an interstate. So we've gotten ourselves into <sighs> this situation um, now where there's going to be many more debates and many groups are already threatening to sue to try to stop it. I think on both sides, there's going to be um, threats to sue. And I don't think it will be done by the Olympics. I don't think there's any way. Mm -hmm. No, we just can't get things done that fast. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure some things will get done fast when we'll be shocked, but um, don't think that's going to happen. I see two bad scenarios here by trying to somehow make this a better project using these CBAs, right? Like this is built and then they violate some term of the agreement and it just sits unused, right? Or they build it and then they give that money to Metro 
to operate, let's say the Dodger Express, and they run like this most amazing Dodger Express service they've ever run, including through the Olympics. And then Metro just decides that they're going to stop operating the Dodger Express for whatever reason. And then we really do end up with like fewer options to get there. And then people can only take the gondola, right? Like I just, I see like these, we can't rely on really anyone to um, make the best decision here because the best decision has not been explored and we don't even know what it is yet. I know what it is. Alyssa, buses. Stop this I mean, like silly conversation. Look, I, you know, I'm a car girly. Sorry, everyone. Um, but I would absolutely take Metro more if they were consistent. Number one, if they were consistent. Um, and the way that we get more people onto these buses is to make them more consistent. And like, I, we need to be spending our money making Metro seem cool and sexy and hip. Like I'm loving the TikTok output of Metro. That's one way of doing it. But like, look at every other city, like LA is the only place that I drive. The only place, any other city you can take the Metro at any given time and you feel safe and it's working and it's great. That's what we need to be investing our time and resources and energy into is like, really actually building out our bus infrastructure and just getting people out of their cars and onto buses. Like this has been what the community has asked for for decades. I remember the Bus Riders Union talking about this like 20 years ago. This is like more buses, less police, more buses, less police. Like that is a chant that exists and we still don't have it. Um, So I just, I think this idea is just like so deeply unserious I will be shocked if it gets done. Um, certainly shocked out of my mind if it gets done before 2028. But like you said, we've seen other cities just actually decide to like put the work in when they want to impress the rest of the world. Screw us as constituents and community members and people that live here. But when we want to impress, you know, the IOC or all of the people that are going to be flying in from everywhere oh, yeah, oh, all of a sudden we can build stuff. Um, so I don't know. I think it's truly too deeply and serious to get done. I hope that everyone sues each other into oblivion and we just, the project is stalled. That's what I hope happens. Um, but we'll see. I think that the community will find a way to make their presence known as they always do. Um, and I'm really inspired by all of the organizers um, trying to stop this from happening because I think one way or another we can. I think we'll get another peek at um, what the people want from Metro at an upcoming board meeting where there will be discussions about a proposal by Lyft to uh, take over the contract for our Metro bike (laughs) bike share system, uh, which is... (laughs) currently run by a local company that is unionized and is part of the community. And um, these organizers really don't want to hand another crucial part of our transportation system uh, over to Lyft, which has not been the best actor in in, uh, in transportation. <laughs> what do you mean by that, Alyssa? <laughs> I mean, they run a lot of bike share systems. We're going to talk about this in a future episode. That, that This is coming up. But uh, until then, let's talk about some election stuff.
Okay, we have a phenomenal guest with us today. Uh, one of my very favorite people to talk to about these types of issues, Godfrey Plata, who is from LA Forward. Welcome, Yay. Godfrey. I thought we were talking about Rachel. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I like her too. But <laughs> what I love about talking to Godfrey is, first of all, always very informed on the issues, but also just always amazing to me. And full disclosure, I also do some work with LA Forward, but the other arm of LA Forward, um, uh, just how well LA Forward is doing at organizing people, getting people to get together and talk about elections, getting the candidates together to talk in these forums, you know, from like months ago. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, for folks I don't know out there, uh, my name is Godfrey Plata. My pronouns are he and his. I'm the deputy director at LA Forward Institute and LA Forward. Uh, they are uh, two nonprofits. One of them is C3, primarily interested in education. So for example, what um, Alyssa was referring to is we held a series of city council candidate forums that were primarily educational. Um, it was the beginning of the election race before folks were even um, collecting signatures to be on the ballot. And we wanted folks to get a sense of who was trying to throw in um, and represent them. And so we brought folks together, I think, for the CD14 race at that time, there were already nine folks. So nine folks said yes to us. Kevin DeLeon had not yet even thrown in. Um, at the time that we started but he planning. doesn't come to these anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and we do that not just for electoral stuff, uh, but around how to get involved civically through organizing, advocacy, how our city and county work, um, different issues that folks um, want to get to know better, uh, charter reform, on our crisis response, housing justice, lots of things. Um, our C4 work um, allows us to be more active politically, and that's LA Forward, not LA Forward Institute. Um, and so LA Forward can endorse during election season. That's sort of our trajectory in election season, um, uh, but we do much more. Those are a few headlines. And one thing to just shout out too, um, and we can we can remind people at the end too, is you have these voter ballot filling out parties. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll drop the link to that and you can go and just, like I said, just go hang out with people who want to talk these things through and bring your ballot and fill it out. Yeah, I think uh, uh, voting is a really intimidating process. You get a multi-page document that you have to fold out. You have all these names and offices and initiatives on them, many of which folks do not have familiarity with um, unless they're already in this work. And most people are not. Most people are just focused on surviving. Um, and so we thought just to create a community space to be able to fill out ballots together, not even focused completely on our endorsements. There's many things on the ballots that we don't do endorsing in, but just being able to come together with resources, ask questions in real time so that you walk away having a better sense of what you're bubbling in and not playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo, because that can get us into trouble too. <laughs> okay, so the way we were thinking to do this is we're each going to kind of throw out... Um, just a few different races or issues or overall themes, I guess. Um, and so hopefully Godfrey will have all the answers for us to fill in the <laughs> blanks of things we don't know. Oh, no. Let's start with CD14, since you already brought it up. And it's a wide range, full race. And, you know, the, the district has gone through some pretty serious changes. Some of the negative changes are precipitated by the leader, leaders who have been in place in that district. Um, 
what I'm talking about, of course, is <laughs> Kevin DeLeon. I don't think our <laughs> listeners need like the whole briefing. <laughs> I mean, how do you, Kevin DeLeon is the incumbent. Like you said, he didn't, he declared quite late, which was really interesting. Like he let everybody else jump in and then threw his hat in, but he doesn't show up to any of the debates and doesn't fill out any of the questionnaires. Let's remember, because of his role in the Fed tapes, was kicked off all of his council committees, leaving him with plenty of time to go to toy giveaways or attend ribbon cuttings for new playgrounds. In addition to that, he is using his district's discretionary money, your money, to send letters, like actual physical letters to his constituents saying like, hi, it's me, Kevin DeLeon. Remember me? I trimmed your trees or I picked up that couch on the curb. And he's even like putting water bottles in tote bags with his name on them, uh, on doors in the district. In addition to um, his actual campaign mailers, where he made this like soft apology in Comic Sans about how he stuck with the district um, when others would have quit, which is really something to say when literally every elected official all the way to the top was telling you to quit. <laughs> um, let's first talk about um, the pick from LA Forward and why you thought that that was the best endorsement um, coming from LA Forward. Yeah, um, LA Forward has endorsed um, Isabel Gerardo. This is her, her first time um, running for office. And I think that's meaningful. Um, she's spent her time supporting tenants as a lawyer. Um, she herself is a, um, a single mom right now who's also supported caretaking of her father. Um, she's a queer Filipina who has been in that district. Um, and so she has um, both a sense of what it means to be um, a grassroots person, but also supporting folks at the grassroots as they work through um, housing justice concerns. And everybody knows that housing insecurity and homelessness are the number one issues um, uh, impacting all of LA City. Um, and Skid Row is in CD14. And so when you think about the expertise that is necessary to be able to support LA to make an important turn here for leadership in CD14, she's really well positioned to do that from a policy perspective, from the relationship she's had in her tenant work perspective, um, the housing justice organizations in the area already know her um, and have worked with her. She sits on the board um, of, of some of the ones in East LA already. Um, and so she's really well positioned to lead here on um, this major issue in LA. Um, and I think when we look at who she's running against, that's an important reason why we backed her as well. Um, not only is she challenging um, current council member Kevin DeLeon, who is you know, way past his due date for leaving his seat. Um, but there's, <laughs> you know, the two other major, um, I would qualify as establishment um, challengers to his seat, uh, Miguel Santiago and Wendy Carrillo, um, both of whom have made their names as of late at the state legislature, um, where, you know, um, while they've been good on votes um, for things that in general, the Democratic Party will support um, from a um, sort of progressive agenda, basic kind of standpoint. Um, I think when people pull up their money and the relationships they have, they very much are aligned with um, the status quo world of how politics operates right now, um, which has built its path through the Democratic Party, aligned with particular interests, including gas, oil, um, that kind of direction. I think both have tried to separate themselves from particular interests um, that they've received support from in the past. Um, but it's come back to really haunt them. And, um, you know, uh, Isabel is a pure candidate, um, does not have that record of taking corporate or special interest money um, and is truly driven by people power, both 
in the way that she has operated in the world, but also now in how she runs and funds her campaign. I mean, that sounds like the direction that the district probably needs to go. I mean, looking at the the curse of the the seasoned politician coming back to L.A. after their time at the state house or whatever, it just hasn't seemed to go very well for us in the past. It seems like um, maybe we need to be focusing more on uh, electing people who um, have dedicated their lives to Los Angeles. Um, and the other thing I think that's just really striking in this race is, like you said, like this kind of faux progressivism or the oil and gas donations of the past, you can't run away from that money once you accept it. Mm-hmm. And for a place like CD14, that's a huge problem. And I even think like Kevin DeLeon was was heralded as this climate champion, but even he never managed to really deliver once he got to the the city level. We never saw that kind of commitment to really transforming the district uh, from a climate perspective, and especially on transportation, he's been like kind of really horrible. So, And no commitment <laughs> to the district at all, I would argue. I mean, right, like as soon as he got into his office, he threw in for mayor, like he was ready to leave mm-hmm. in a heartbeat his district behind. So like we have we have a whole list of reasons why it shouldn't be Kevin DeLeon. I think the real race here is about supporting voters to understand the differences between the other two big names they may have seen on ballots before um, and this newcomer, Isabel Gerardo. Yeah, I obviously Kevin DeLeon needs to go. I don't think we need to get any more into that. I think Godfrey did a great <laughs> um, explainer as to why Isabel is you know, clearly the right choice and um, Alyssa as well, just setting up KDL's past. This this seat was obviously a placeholder for him on his way to becoming mayor. That didn't happen. So sad. Um, we also now know that he is a bigot. So you need to go for that reason. But I think in particular, I have a bone to pick with Wendy Carrillo. I had not thought about her much, to be honest, until last November when she was hit with a DUI. Um, and for me, that is so disqualifying. Like, I don't even know where to begin. Next month, I will be one year sober. So I've had my own struggles with um, alcohol and drinking. It's something that my family has dealt with. It's something that a lot of people deal with. I think in a city like LA, that's 101 everywhere you live, but especially a city like LA that is set up for cars, especially when you're an elected official, and you have so many more resources that other people don't have. I hope that she's getting help, you know? Um, And I think if you're struggling with alcohol, you should get help as well. There's plenty of um, people to reach out to. You can reach out to me. Um, But for me, seeing that was, I just think it's so disqualifying that I cannot believe she has gotten endorsements, Um, and especially endorsements from places that I really respect. I can't believe you're even still in the race. It's upsetting. And one of the endorsements that was very high profile that she got was from Streets for All, which is also trying to pass this ballot measure that would ostensibly make streets safer. I mean, I think this endorsement is incredibly misguided. And unfortunately, the connection to HLA immediately got the attention of the wealthy Westsiders who have made a career out of opposing um, so-called road diets that make streets more multimodal. Um, even though these people mostly commute from other cities into LA and don't even live here. Um, And then the following week, Tracy Park, who is basically like 
uh, the prom queen of the anti-road diet crowd um, has gotten together with the firefighters union, UFLAC, to mount this huge opposition to HLA, um, claiming that bike and bus lanes slow down emergency response. This has been proven time and time again not to be true. In fact, the lanes can be more easily used by fire trucks. But because of all this coverage in places like the West Side Current, for example, I did look on Wendy Carrillo's website and it literally has no issues on it. It literally has no <laughs> platform. It has nothing. Yeah. God, Godfrey's like nodding. <laughs> so it's a real like phoning it in situation mm-hmm. beyond, you know, anything that she does or her actions. Um, there's also a a sexual harassment situation that um, we've talked about here on the show a long time ago that also should not be forgotten. I'm just saying that if you're going to just come back here and try to run for office locally, just try to do a little bit of a better job next time. (laughs) Like if you're going to bring all that baggage back here, um, let's try to convince us that you actually do care about these issues because I live in her district and I've never seen her at any transportation stuff. Like I don't see her like coming out here to the bus lane ribbon cuttings or anything. Like I don't know what she's actually done for those things. So I'm hoping that maybe endorsement could be changed. Um, Anything else to add on 14? Godfrey. I mean, I think I think it was also just just from jump um, when I found out that both she and Miguel Santiago were throwing in, I was a little bewildered about why two assembly members um, adjacent to each other who run in pretty similar circles would run against each other for the same seat. Um, I think um, if you look sort of at, at the past, I think arguably people would place Miguel sort of as um, someone who would follow maybe in, in Kevin DeLeon's footsteps just because of who they hang with and, um, and who they run with. Um, and so it's just very interesting. What, what is, I, I wonder what conversations they've had about um, what frames Wendy's um, addition to this race, um, what she's really potentially looking for out of this. If, if Miguel Santiago, you know, has a lot of sort of labor backing in his corner already, um, like what's, What's the deal here? I'm I'm not sure completely. Um, maybe maybe she does think that she um, is is the more qualified candidate between them. But if that's true, we haven't heard why. Um, there hasn't been a lot of distinguishing between those two as as the two sort of major establishment candidates. I'm um, trying to displace um, Kevin De Leon here. So the person really carving out their rain, their lane is Isabel. She's the person who's actually made the biggest case for why she belongs there. Yeah, and maybe they just think they can run for mayor if they become CD14 council member. So that's why they, they want well, to try to the, the play that I thought about, too, was in 2026, Hilda Solis is up, right, for supervisor. And so, like, who's next in line for that wow, particular seat? I, I can imagine a wow, whole lot of legislators coming in to this particular conversation and just needing to build base. Um, around. Yeah, it. and I even remember uh, there was an interview where it did mention, you know, they were like friends like like you said like before the the fed tapes like you know they were supporting each other and and endorsing each other and and things like that but then i I remember there was one interview where it was like there's not a lot of policy daylight between um carrillo santiago and and de leon and and even like i think wendy or someone actually admitted that like there's not much difference between us and i was like don't say that All right, let's move on to one I had questions about because during the Super Bowl, there was an ad that was like, Prop 1 is going to get all the veterans housed in the state of California. (laughs) 
And so this is a state we have, I feel like it's such a rare time where we only have like one proposition from the state. So it's like, the only one proposition from the state, we have one city proposition, we have prop one, and then we have uh, measure HLA at the city. So it's just so funny that we usually have like pages and pages and pages, but Prop one makes up for it by being like literally like a hundred pages long when you look at it in the voter guide. It's so long. And in a nutshell, I mean, I'm I'm gonna try to boil this down because it is actually quite complicated what, what's happening here. But there's going to be um two two types of revenue, and just shake your head if I get any of this wrong, but one is going to be um, we're going to be changing the way that mental health uh, treatment is done in the state, which is, of course, needed and something that we really need to do. But one part of it is this bond measure, which we're not actually voting to like tax ourselves, which we normally do for bond measures, but it's going to be a bond measure. And while it was in this process of being approved, this is a plan of Governor Gavin Newsom. Like He wrote this and took it to the legislature and said, put this on the ballot. And while he was drafting this up or whatever, it changed from mental health beds. This is what we always think of when we're trying to help people with supportive housing or um, when we call a mental health responder and you want to get help for somebody to more of like institutional settings. Mm -hmm. That is the part that a lot of progressives have kind of flagged and said, this is a totally different thing that you're proposing. And like his care court plan, which is something we talked about on the show before, it seems like what he's trying to do is once again, like to take people and put them in places that they might not want to be just because they're bothering you or him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And although it seems like it's got tons of support, I mean, the LA Times says yes in its voter guide. Um, I was really alarmed um, at some of the reasoning, like it's kind of just like we need to do something and this is this does some of it. Um, but I think, Rachel, you found probably the best no recommendation that I think from the people who would, mm-hmm. who would know the most. Um, do you want to read that one? Yeah. From the Initiate Justice uh, voter guide for this election cycle. Furthermore, Proposition 1 appears to be a thinly veiled attempt to finance the expansion of the controversial care court system, which allows judges to force people into a substance abuse or a mental health treatment plan, and possibly even place them in a conservatorship if they refuse the treatment plan. Ooh, not great. Not great, Gav. Paired with that and the fact that he's also filing these amicus briefs with the grants pass case that's going to the Supreme Court, you know, he's literally saying, like, please help us figure out how to kick people off the streets with nowhere mm-hmm. to go, because what that would do is overturn Martin versus Boise, which is basically saying you can't tell people to move unless you have housing for them. Um, so he's mm-hmm. looking for a way out. He's looking for a way to just um, carry out his Gav agenda here. And I'll also say that like the way, other way it's been framed, which is just so funny, is it's like, oh, this measure, it, you know, it's one thing that's bringing together Republicans and Democrats. And I'm like, or maybe they're just Democrats that kind of act like Republicans, <laughs> which we're going to talk about in a minute. <laughs> maybe we should look yeah, a little bit closer uh, at that. What scares me in particular about this is that his the initial way it was written said it was 10,000 voluntary beds. We know that there are way more than 10,000 unhoused people who need 
beds need housing of some sort. Um, and so with this change, what I hear and what I read um, in between the lines is that, okay, even if it's still like 10,000 involuntary beds, if we institutionalize 10,000 people against their will, what about everybody else? Do, where do those people go against their will? And to me, it's like jail, we'll just imprison them, we'll just throw them in prison. And so now we need to funnel more money there, which feels like the ultimate goal. Once again, it feels like the ultimate goal is cops and prisons. Um, and that is terrifying to me. And I think the, the other part of this that I've heard from other um, sort of local nonprofits and folks who support mental health work, why they're invested in this is that it, uh, this particular proposition takes money away from previously approved money for mental health mm -hmm. services in order to carve out um, this particular piece from that funding to fund everything that you all are talking about. And so mental health folks are thinking about the money that they're not going to have access to as soon as we begin to fund what you all have just explained. Um, and so from their standpoint, some of the reason why this is not getting louder is because people are just afraid of what would happen if the governor or folks who are supporting mm -hmm. the governor are hearing their pushback against this particular proposition uh, because they're still needing some of that state support to be able to provide the services mm -hmm. that they do provide community. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And you do see like a lot of people have not made a, an endorsement or recommendation um, that you would think probably would. Um, and that that's a perfectly good reason for that. I, I will say, uh, you know, if, if it was something that actually had like a housing component and it does, it has like a very small amount that's like for affordable housing, you know, the veterans thing is not really a lie. I guess the money would go to veterans housing. We have a, this, huge complex here yeah. <laughs> it's federal but like that's a good example of like yes that money could go to help you know build something and get that moving along but i think the bigger thing for me is like the state under gavin newsom has been almost completely useless on housing because it's always proposing mm -hmm. things like this that don't actually solve the problem instead of like actually building housing which we actually started to crack the code here on in LA with ED1. We've, we're finally churning out actually affordable housing. Um, it's getting approved really fast. It's getting built really fast through ED1. That's Karen Bass's um, executive director of one. So if it was for something that was actually, that did something like that, I guess you don't even need a ballot measure for that. He could just do it, but he keeps promising to like build more housing, but it's always like, oh, we built you 50 tiny homes. Oh, we brought these trailers down and we never, <laughs> we never even use them. They're just in a parking lot in San Diego. So for me, I don't really trust <laughs> this and I don't really trust him on housing in general. Wow. So maybe we'll pick up from there. Republicans becoming Democrats or actually just being secret Republicans the whole time. Well, I think about, I think the Newsom case is a little, <laughs> maybe a little different in that I, I think he fully expects to uh, be very Democratic, but I, but I know just to build the bridge there, right? Like he's got his eyes potentially on a more national profile. Um, yeah. And so the decisions he's making now, yeah. um, I think are, are very different from decisions he might make where he's still a local official and he's trying to ensure mm. that he can create a more, uh, a, a larger, wider base 
of folks nationally, and he may not be pushing a more progressive agenda, even though we've got legislators around him who potentially would even more uh, push more progressive um, than he would right now because he's got something at stake nationally. Yeah, right. Um, let's go back to local races. Um, we have a week left and we have two races that will most likely be determined in this primary CD. 12 only has two people running and CD4 has three people running, but it's very likely that one of the people will get to 50% and therefore we won't have to have the runoff in November. There was a great story in the nation by former council member Mike Bonin and Peter Dreyer, which is about that race, CD4, and what's at stake and who is behind the opposition. And really outlining this huge, and I'll say Republican, because it actually is <laughs> in many instances. <laughs> like People are like, oh, you're exaggerating. Like Rick Caruso is a Democrat. Okay. But um, mm-hmm. some of the people he works with are not. <laughs> like they're not even, they don't even pretend to be Democrats. And um, a friend of the show, Adam Conover, did this amazing thread too. Following this money, where is this money coming from? There's this new nonprofit called Thrive, um, which is holding these big fundraisers and doing like a, some polling on the issues of the day. And um, at the same time, we're seeing a tremendous amount of money from the apartment uh, landlords, mega, mega landlord. I don't know. What do you call them when they're like... It's the opposite of a mom and pop landlord, like corporate landlord. Like a corporate landlord. Right? (laughs) And the LAPPL, which is the Police Protective League, um, they're putting tons of money uh, on no campaigns against uh, Nithya Raman and George Gascon. They're doing them like together, like they're in this buddy movie um, where they're trying to (laughs) um, ruin Los Angeles together. (laughs) They've they've, they've somehow like collaborated (laughs) on this project. And it's just the, the messages are so funny. If you've seen the ads, it's basically the police blaming them for making the city less safe. So it's like, these people have made the city less safe, sponsored by the Los Angeles Police Protective League. And you're like, literally, that's your job. (laughs) So how are you making these ads um, that are saying that? And then and that, uh, and then on top of all that, we have Ethan Weaver, who is um, Nithya Raman's opponent in CD4, is getting his own fundraiser from Rick Russo. Pacific Palisades on a Thursday, as Rachel pointed out. Middle like, of the day. Yeah, who does a yeah. lunchtime? <laughs> Only the serious men. Serious men with no jobs because they don't have to work because they have a ton of money <laughs> and can afford to live in $9 million houses in the Palisades. That's who. So close to CD4 as well. Just like, just a quick hour and a half drive. <laughs> yeah, just, just popping on over to write a check. So what, I mean, this isn't new. We saw this kind of surfacing during the Caruso era, you know, when, when we had that race. He lost, like, very badly. So is this something to be alarmed about? Should we be worried that the, these groups have kind of, like... Uh, assembled Voltron-like to try to take down the progressive candidates? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, so if you read the Nation article, like it um, it talks about this referendum, right, that you're describing um, against sort of a first target. In this case, it's Councilwoman Nithya Raman, 
who really surprised um, uh, the establishment when she beat someone who was getting all of the establishment endorsements and money, et cetera, with the largest vote for a city council member ever up until that point in 2020. She really built this through people power, a people power driven campaign at the doors during a pandemic, right? Like the shock of that, I think really woke up folks who were propping up a system that was just accepted that they would be always in power. Um, They thought it was a fluke is what the article continues to argue until Eunices Hernandez, Hugo Soto Martinez, like other folks, Kenneth Mejia, other folks started to follow the same pattern. So I think what we see now is a couple of things. We see um, folks co-opting the language of movement building, but now this thrive kind of existence um, is taking on sort of like movement language, like we're going to do this, right? Like um, it, it's starting to build that and 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 take that from the real people-powered progressive campaigns um, that beat moneyed interests before that. And then I, you know, like a, a lot of progressive candidates run on the fact that there are too many special interests and um, and, and moneyed powers that be that get their way into office and get their candidates into office. So now I feel like they're just double downing and they're owning it. They're like, yeah, <laughs> and now we're going to use our money to, to push you out is mm-hmm. what they're trying, right? So it really is testing the progressive ecosystem um, that a lot of us have, have been um, a part of and have witnessed and have, have started to grow. I, I think this is a test. Um, of of the system, um, we should. I, I do think we should be worried. We we need to do continued work, and that's hard now, um, because now Councilwoman Ra- Ramen runs on a on a record. Eunice Hernandez or Gosto Martinez will run on a record, um, and and um, uh, I think before we were very excited about all the hopes and aims of having a more progressive candidate there. And the reality of the situation is, when you get on the inside, you're going to get some things. You're not going to get all the things. Um, right away. And um, I think that's testing the will of a progressive body that elected them. This is exactly what I also wanted to talk about um, for my like one big question that I had, which is if these special interests, real estate and the cops in particular, if they are already planning on spending millions of dollars to run opponents and just run otherwise negative copy against people like Nithya or um, eventually Ugo and Eunices, then why not actually run the way that they're portraying you to be? (laughs) Like, why not just say, all right, yeah, I'm actually not going to vote to give you more money, cop union. I'm actually not going to, um, you know, play nice, essentially, with the more moderate parts of the council. And so that was just something that I have been pondering as we see them basically accuse people like Nithya of like hog tying cops. Well, our hands are tied and that's why we can't protect you. Um, That's why crime is up and making up all of these other lies. Like if they're already going to do that and we saw them doing that in the last four years throughout this time, why not just actually lean in? Um, Why not lean into that? Why not be bold and be progressive um, I think that Eunices is a great example of someone who is doing that and is using her seat in really smart ways um, to still stand on her values and why she was elected. Um, and I haven't really seen her compromise it as much as I've seen Nithya and Ugo do that. And I'm not saying that like Nithya and Ugo 
are actually not as progressive as they say. What I'm saying is that what you said, Godfrey, once you get into these seats, it is a push and pull. Um, and you're not going to get everything that you want for your constituents or everything you said you could deliver. Um, and you do have to make concessions. But again, I ask, like, what's stopping them from just saying, you know what, I am going to vote no on this. And how do we encourage our progressive politicians to stand on that um, and lead with their values 100% of the time instead of like 50-50? And I feel like there's such a good example of this in our Senate race that's occurring right now. I mean, you really have mm. these candidates who are, well, they're middle of the road anyway, but they're they're trying so hard to appease <laughs> the masses. But then you have one candidate who's very clearly the most progressive and unapologetically mm. so, Barbara Lee. And that's a clear choice for anyone who wants the more progressive path in the state, who wants things like a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and mm. conditions placed upon our financial support of that war from someone who will actually have the power as a senator to do those things. And this was kind of the central narrative of this incredible story by Rebecca Traster in New York Magazine, um, who showed that, you know, even though Lee does have incredible support, someone like Adam Schiff, the moderate, is always going to have the establishment backing him. Mm. But I think like Barbara Lee has had a decades-long career of standing up for her value. She was the only person to vote against the war in Iraq. And I'm super biased. We both went to Mills. I think she has been such a big inspiration for me. Um, she integrated the cheerleading team at San Fernando High in the Valley. Like, she is also a Valley girl. Um, she's just, her entire life has had this record um, that is so inspiring. Like, we already have people we can draw from, draw inspiration from in terms of standing yeah. up for what we believe, regardless of the treatment we're going to get. I mean, the way she was treated after that vote um, to not authorize the war. And of course, she was the only one. <laughs> so, you know, we all know the history. Um, but she continued to show up for her constituents and show up for herself um, and what she believes in. And now we're in this incredibly frustrating position um, where we have people like Adam Schiff who have all of this money and this war chest and just this incredible establishment backing, despite the fact that he's very lukewarm and has taken money um, from people in places that he shouldn't. Um, and to me, it's like, you know, you also add in the anti-Blackness of our <laughs> political system. Um, it's unfortunate. I still am going to support Barbara Lee um, the same way that I'll support Nithya as well in this race. Um, I just, I want our progressive politicians to do better because I know that they can and I know that they want to and I know what their values are. Um, it's just unfortunate how they have been pushed in their roles. Um, and if people are already going to paint you as a socialist, communist, worst type of dem, then like that, then let's go. Let's do that. Let's, let's be a part of that let's change. Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, some, some things that give me hope around all of this are, um, so outside of LA Forward, um, I'm also involved in lots of different political spaces. And I was up in Sacramento for the California Democratic Party convention um, in November um, and when the Senate race came up for conversation and for possible endorsement, um, 
what ended up happening was um, uh, the the three Senate candidates we're talking about right now, um, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, had all been polling in such a way that Barbara Lee was expected um, to be sort of at the bottom of, of that list because of fundraising or whatnot. She actually topped the list and Adam Schiff was the one um, at the bottom of that particular vote. So there is no California Democratic Party endorsed um, candidate coming out of that particular convention. Um, and so I think um, we um, we also um, can buy into these myths that um, the folks who are in the establishment are only one way. I, I have a lot of hope that, wow, if she topped out with the most votes in there, like what's happening in the grassroots right now between now and, and mm-hmm. March 5th election day? Like, could she squeeze into the top two? And with whom um, at this point? Um, I don't I, I don't want to give money that much credence right now, but, um, you know, you, I'll, I'll be mentally deal with it and emotionally deal with it um, after the election if it plays out exactly the way that we expect it might, but there are bits and pieces of hope um, in this to hang our hats on. I love that. Unfortunately, we do have a, a literal Republican running in the race as well, who That's is polling true. also <laughs> pretty well. So it's possible it may come down to shift versus a baseball player. So um, <laughs> vote accordingly on that one, as you might. And then one last mention here with another um, Republican slash former Republican, John Lee, also known as City Staffer B, um, is facing Serena Oberstein. Um, this one seems pretty obvious. Like we said a million times on this show, Lorraine Lindquist actually did win um, the first round. She won several rounds. She lost by only like 1% um, <laughs> at, the, at the final moment. Um, so that is actually a district that is ready for change, clearly. And I think that's another one that's going to be decided. And it's an easy choice, the non-Republican. Um Rachel, you wanted to talk about six, which we can do briefly, which is, again, just like a super sad yeah. situation that we're in. Yeah, again. I was going to say, we don't we don't need to spend a whole lot of time on this. I just want to lament that, once again, CD6 is in a shitty situation, as it has been for a very long time. Um, I'm upset by this. This CD6 deserves a good faith steward. Of the dis of of their neighborhoods and their communities, the constituents deserve someone that cares about all of them, housed or not. Um, because you know, Nuri Martinez did a bang up job of not helping as much as she could have. Um, we have um, incumbent Imelda Padilla running um, against a few other people, I believe two other people. Um, and it's just like, sadly, I wouldn't vote for any of them, especially Imelda Padilla. She really is Nuri Jr. Um, she backs 4118. To me, that's all I needed to see, um, to know that she's just not fit for um, being council member of CD6. I read a story in In These Times by Jack Ross. It's really just incredible reporting about the inhumane sweeps that we know happen throughout the city, um, but in particular, CD6, um, what's been happening with those encampments. Um, Folks, of course, um, in sweeps have their personal belongings thrown into trash bags and thrown away. They're not meant to be thrown away. They're meant to be put somewhere safely for folks to pick them up once the sweep is done. We know from various reports that that does not happen and that people's stuff is just completely destroyed. That includes 
IDs, photos, um, and even things like Narcan, which um, this article goes into that Narcan, which is a life-saving um, treatment for overdoses, is being thrown away by our own city. And it's being okayed by council members whose entire job it is to protect their constituents. Um, and again, whether or not they're housed, that is their job. And so I just, I feel so bad for the place that I grew up in. They just deserve better. That's really all I have to say. Daphne, do you know why there wasn't a progressive challenger mounted again? Because there were, um, you know, yeah. you Marco Santana running last year mm -hmm. to try to fill the seat in a special election, but we didn't have, now we had nobody running in the general. No, I mean, I, I mean, I, I have seen uh, Marco Santana, Antoinette Scully, who also ran Isaac Kim, like all of these folks who threw in um, for the primary or uh, not the primary was to fill in. That wasn't special a primary, election. The special election yeah. <laughs> that happened because of the fill leaked in. audio. I like tapes. fill in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Should have been a fill in. <laughs> I um I think I've I've seen them all since, and they are all engaged in community. I mean, it's. Um, I, I know personally it is very hard and taxing on one's life to run for office. Um, we need to build a bench of folks who um, both have the conviction and space and continued base to be able to mm -hmm. be ready whenever. Um, and it's and it's hard, right? People um, think that um, uh, they need to do a lot of planning around their their lives, and and they do. But it, I think it's about staying ready, not just getting ready to run. And I think mm -hmm. the exhaust of all of it, I'm sure, um, was costly to, to some of those folks. And I'm sure they learned a lot. And um, there are going to be names that we see in the future in some sort of way, in some sort of community leadership um, positions, maybe for running for office again at some point. I don't know. But um, we it just it did the turnaround time, which is so quick um, on it. It's, it's hard to do it twice. Yeah, that's true. It is a shame. And I also did see that Jack tweeted that there was a sweep after the article came out that he wrote and it was targeting people who had Narcan and it seemed like it was because of the article, which is absolutely unacceptable. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of retaliatory behavior that like we saw with Nuri and like that we heard on yeah. the tapes. Um, and so it doesn't surprise yeah. me that someone who was like brought up by her in a lot of ways um, turns around and does that. Um, it's just extremely unfortunate uh, for yeah. the residents of CD6. And thank you, Godfrey, for explaining that. Like, yeah, it's, running for office isn't just something you get up and do. Um, and so I can completely <laughs> appreciate that. So, you know, hopefully in the future we get, we get someone better in there. I do have hope. Well, we've got four years to get someone better in, in that seat. Um, we have not talked about the judicial races. And I'm so curious to hear about this because the Defenders of Justice slate has been like a really big deal over the last few election cycles, um, um, just seeing people care about judges at all. <laughs> so. Yeah, um, I mean, a, a couple of things, right? I would say, you know, before three years ago, whenever I would get to the judges portion of the ballot, I would spend <laughs> hours in front of my laptop, mostly because I'm that geeky enough that I would try to see <laughs> if I could find research about particular judicial candidates, and it felt almost impossible. I really did not know where to look, um, who to look up, who to trust um, for particular decisions there. And so that was just something that I felt like was always a gimbal. Um, and, um, you know, La, La Defensa um, in 
2021, 2022, began to imagine like, you know, we probably should be cultivating a bench of folks who were clear on what their orientation is around systems of mass incarceration and the roles in which um, judicial seats play a role in maintaining those systems. Um, something I've learned along the way is that almost every election cycle, there are hundreds, more like more than a hundred, if not hundreds of judges up for renewal every single election cycle. But the number of them that eventually even get to our ballot is like 10. That's how many is on my ballot right now as an LA County voter. And that's because not enough um, lawyers out there, public defenders, civil rights attorneys, they're spending their days toiling at trial and in litigation and defending folks. They're not learning how to run for office or even imagining that particular pathway for themselves. And so this experiment um, that La Defensa has helped to help LA County imagine is what would happen if there was a slate of judges who you were clear on their orientation for? And they, they created something called the Defenders of Justice. Um, and back in 2022, an initial slate of folks um, ran um, for different judicial seats who are uh, aligned in terms of um, their view of what the judicial seat could do to support communities as opposed to incarcerate them fully. Um, and um, I think one person um, in that particular slate was able to get into um, a judicial seat, Judge Holly Hancock now. Um, and so it's sort of to continue that first trial at a, a slate of judicial candidates. Defenders of Justice is back again with three candidates um, who are um, amazing. I've had the opportunity to support them even before they decided to run for office because I was part of a judicial leadership academy um, that La Defensa wanted to partner on LA Forward with to support folks to understand how to run for office. Um, and so out of that group of 12, there's this three that is running as a slate and some additional folks as well running outside of this slate, but as public defenders who are creating a different imagination for um, us as voters for who could be on the ballot. Um, the three folks who are part of Defenders of Justice are Lachey Henderson, George Turner, and Erica Wiley. Um, and what's really amazing is they are, um, you know, because of the training they've done, because of the support that's now possible, because this has been done before, they have been raking up endorsement. Erica got the LA Times endorsement, the Labor endorsement, the Dem Club endorsement. Like, I, I don't think that people are not wanting voices like public defenders at the table. They are looking for experience. People are looking for community rootedness. It's just that our lawyers who exist out there who have this experience just have never thought of themselves as possible right, candidates. So right. it's really exciting mm -hmm, to see this happen. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. There's, um, you know, 1.8 million people who voted in the last 2020 presidential election um, for, for judges. Um, and most of us don't know 1.8 million people um, in LA County. So reaching out to a countywide audience as grassroots yeah. candidates is difficult. Um, and yeah. that I think is part of the work that we are doing as a progressive um, wing of LA activists, organizers, et cetera, to try to build a machine that can really be a megaphone for candidates like the ones we're supporting countywide. That's amazing. And you you noted that one of them got an LA Times endorsement. Not that we Yeah, Erica trust Wiley the, um, got yeah. the LA Times endorsement. Um, the other exciting thing is another public defender, Kim Rapeka, was also in, uh, endorsed by LA Times, is not part of the Defenders of Justice slate, um, but is the first time in 30 years that the LA Times decided to endorse um, a challenger to an incumbent. One that tells me a couple yeah. of things. That the LA Times is hesitant mm. to <laughs> to um, <laughs> uh, uh, endorse uh, 
a challenger is to incumbents. So there's like a bigger question around that. But this this uh, incumbent, Emily Spear, um, has had enough ethics concerns that they're going for a public defender, a new candidate as as the option. So LA Times has endorsed Kim Rebecca and Erica Wiley as two public defenders for office this year. That's great. I see that a lot of voter guides actually haven't even filled out their judges yet. There's a bunch of places that are like right. coming soon because it is a lot of work. But it, I mean, I don't want to sound like glib in any way, but like, is it better just to vote for a public defender in general if you are just someone who's just looking through and filling it out? Like, is that a better choice if you are going to be somebody who's just doing that? I mean, um, that's hard as a general rule, right? Like there, um, I, I think part of um, what's happening institutionally is that uh, the Bar Association tends to favor folks who come in as deputy attorneys, um, who are uh, folks who have come in with prosecutorial experience. Like the system favors that type of- In their um, own slates, in their experience. own recommendations that they're that's making. That's right. And yeah, so a yeah. lot of public defenders have not even thought of themselves as qualifiable for this kind of work because the Bar Association has carried so much power um, over time um, around these seats. Um, and so I think the public defenders that are coming in sort of in trickle, maybe we're still at the point where public defenders are sort of good enough just because they're a choice that we have to begin <laughs> putting into our system. Like even if we elected all the public defenders on our ballot right now, this primary, there's only five of them um, out wow. of the number that we have. And like I said, there's 160 yeah. plus, I believe, who are up wow. for renewal, but we'll never be able to vote for them because they were never challenged. Yep. So maybe we're still at the point in history where a public defender is going to be our best option because they're just so few from a representative standpoint of the perspectives that are on a bench. Um, But I hope to reach a point of critical mass of of candidates where we do begin to see a variation of public defender candidates. And and let's revisit that when we get into that role. Yeah. I mean, your work on this has been really amazing to watch um, and great branding Defenders of Justice, extremely good. Um, It's been really fun to watch it. Um, You also had a question you wanted to talk about um, an LAUSD school board race, which I have gotten so many questions about as well. I mean, I feel like a lot of school board races don't get a lot of um, attention in general compared to, um, first of all, federal races, let alone like other local races, like city or county ones. Um, You know, at LA Forward, we don't. We, We also don't. Um, in endorse in um, school board races. We focus primarily on city and county. And so I'm wearing my Koreatown renter hat. My current representative is uh, Jackie Goldberg, who is um, leaving her seat. Um, and when she ran for this office um, uh, a couple of years ago, um, she was wholly backed by UTLA as like the candidate they wanted in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this time around, uh, knowing that she was leaving, she nominated her own successor, someone who works at her office, um, someone whose name is Fidencio Gallardo. And UTLA went for another candidate named Carla Griego, who was a special education teacher. It was very close. It was very close. Yes. Um, Thank you for that clarification. But, you know, um, there's another name that I'm getting on mailers. And it is confusing to me just as a voter to know that someone is backed by my current um, school board member who was there because of UTLA as well. And now UTLA is saying, go in this direction. Again, love special educators. My own um, niece um, is is moderately on the spectrum. And so I have sort of intimate knowledge of what it is like to try to navigate the special education system as, as family. Um, and um, I want special educators in there. I think I just kind of want to know 
what went up with this decision? And that's where my question lies. Yeah, I don't really have any insight into the vote, which was was very close. And in every endorsement for this race, you do see just a very high praise for the other candidate, even if they're endorsing the other one. So they do have, I feel like, a lot of similarities. Um, They're both very outspoken about uh, the power and influence, influence of charter schools, which is a very big deal because at LAUSD, they're going to be changing the way that co-location rules apply to these types of deals that are being made, um, which is very needed if you are a parent who's been um, impacted by this and one of your schools. For me as a LUC mom who's been watching this, you know, over the last few years, Jackie Goldberg being the the rare career politician that actually <laughs> dived into this role at a very needed time and does the right amount of yelling um, when necessary at these meetings or at uh, people screaming at her outside of an elementary school for daring to read a book about someone with two moms. Um, She has been really great on two issues, which I think are super important. First of all, she has um, created basically an entirely new department um, at the at the school district um, with, with like a climate czar, with basically someone who mm-hmm. can handle um, all these things, that uh, environmental justice issues and public health issues, frankly, um, that the students at the second largest school district in the nation are facing, including one very near and dear to my heart that I talk about all the time, the fact that most of our schools are covered in asphalt with no chance of ever getting a tree planted or a native garden grown or a blade of grass um, (laughs) that your child could experience. She has pushed on that almost, you know, it's been her and Rocio Rivas basically who have really been um, the key uh, board members on that. So uh, to me... I think they're both really good. I, I I would be really interested to see and and maybe to have hear answers from the two of them specifically on the greening, the climate, the public health stuff, the environmental justice stuff, um, to see if there is, like you said, that that daylight between them, like something that it, you know could convince you. Um, but I also think your point is also really good. You know, special education is is a huge part of LAUSD. It's come under a lot of criticism lately, and She's she's been very deep on those issues and and could bring that to the board, so that's where I am at. I don't have to vote for this person though because Rivas is my representative. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one. It's a good one. Finally, I think we also had one last really good thing to talk about, and we're going to close out with this, which is. How do we even fix any of this if we're still just going to have 15 council members in the city of Los Angeles? Let's talk about that, Godfrey. Yeah. Um, So maybe just a little um, foundation building for folks who are maybe newer to thinking about the fact that we can come up with the rules of our own game when it comes to our politics in L.A. and how we run our elections, what we expect of our politicians, and our representatives. Um, right now, um, we've got 15 city council districts in the city of LA. Uh, we've had the number of 15 since 1925. That's almost 100 years ago. Uh, back then, um, each city council district was about 66,000 people. Um, right now, what we've got is about 264,000 represented uh, 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 residents to one council member. That's the highest ratio of residents to representatives in the nation. 
Um, we've not chosen um, as, uh, uh, as voters to pass any sort of initiative uh, that uh, would allow us to um, make our districts smaller and therefore more representative, you know, smaller districts, we might theorize as ones that could hold our council members more accountable because more of us would have would experience proximity to them, both geographically because they would have to live in our districts in, in a smaller geographic uh, cut of that district. Um, uh, in Chicago, which has 50 older persons, um, folks I know there report that in, in a district of 54,000, uh, people, which is what they have in terms Imagine. of their ratio to one older Imagine. person, um, they're able to go to the office, call people out. Um, the other thing that smaller districts could do is actually support grassroots candidates to succeed um, and actually represent their mm -hmm. communities as opposed to us being subjected to money that comes in because these districts are so large. Um, to be able to win campaigns and get coverage for 265,000 folks who possibly could be voting for you requires a lot of money. Um, and grassroots candidates don't often get access to compete with that. We just talked about that um, on this podcast. And so um, some ways to reform these particular rules of the game that we've um, kept up for almost a century now um, would involve reforming our city's charter. Our city's charter is kind of like its constitution. Um, in it, um, it defines how many districts we ought to have, how often we revisit that number, but also campaign finance things. Right now in LA City, we're operating under a pretty new still structure where um, candidates who are able to um, raise enough dollars from local residents then get to unlock um, matching funds, um, six to one. And that has changed the game. Like no wonder we're talking about folks like Nithya Raman, Hugo Soto Martinez, Eunices Hernandez. These are folks who were running against much bigger moneyed candidates, but were able to unlock matching funds because they grounded their campaigns in organizing residents who were local on the ground. Um, versus when we talk about assembly races, Senate races, or things at the state or federal level, like there's no matching funds there. The caps are like $5,500 per candidate. It's much harder for progressive grassroots folks to battle moneyed interests that can max out at $5,500 each um, per, per candidate. Um, and so some ways that are in conversation right now about changing some of these rules are sure we can create smaller districts, um, which would expand the number of city councils beyond 15. Right, like what would happen in a world in which we had something like 29 uh, uh, districts with much smaller um, groups of residents for a council member to be attentive to? Maybe we would be, maybe we would stop competing against other communities for interest. Maybe we would actually get emails or phone calls back. Instead, offices are flooded uh, with phone calls. Um, this is this is why when we were talking earlier about folks like Rick Caruso still continuing to organize money interest, this still gives them power uh, because their money can out outreach um, some of what it takes to do mm -hmm. canvassing, uh, phone calling, etc. Mm -hmm. Another thing that has been talked about in reform for campaign finance is something called democracy vouchers. Um, for example, democracy vouchers comes from a system is modeled after a system in Seattle that gives residents vouchers. Um, to support local campaigns with. It incentivizes their participation in making donations behind candidates that they might want to support otherwise. 
you can imagine that could change the game completely. In Seattle, what they saw was when they introduced um, when they introduced democracy vouchers, the number of people donating to campaigns increased 600%. Like imagine how much wow. more grassroots candidates would be powered if we had a system where people learned that they could donate <laughs> to a campaign and that it was yeah. the city actually incentivizing their democratic participation in that. Um, so I don't know that like the, that the thought is that expansion of our city council districts by itself will solve the problem, because if we expand city council districts in a rigged system, we're still screwing ourselves over. But if we pair it with things like democracy vouchers or other forms of incentivizing democratic participation, then we've recreated an ecosystem that actually changes the way we participate in politics and who might actually represent us. So all these conversations are happening right now if you follow the ad hoc Committee on Governance Reform, which is a super wonky um, <laughs> committee of seven city council members. My favorite. It's my favorite like, Paul Krikorian show. Love watching yeah. it. I really <laughs> yeah. do. So um, there's, you know, there's a few coalitions right now, academics, um, uh, policy wonks, but also community organizations like LA Forward, like COCO, um, like uh, Inner City Struggle. There's a Chirla. There are groups beginning to pay attention. But I, I think this is the year that we're going to need to build a larger megaphone around the fact that we could change the rules of the game um, or else we're stuck. We're stuck trying to be successful in a status quo world um, and, and we don't have to be. Yeah. And, and it's interesting to see we're going to be likely voting on independent redistricting. That's going to definitely right. change. Um but it's kind of funny that we're just, you know, so far out from the Fed tape situation and we're entering this primary election with with not, no, nothing that we can vote on as voters being like, yeah. hey, we really think that a lot of things should change. And maybe that'll all come to fruition in November. Maybe we'll be able to vote in November. Maybe we'll be able to vote for, as one of the plans is, you would do independent redistricting and then the people who do independent redistricting could recommend a number that they thought that we should expand to and then we vote again on the number yeah, it's, getting, it's getting what happens when we are enabled to come up with rules of the game is there's not very much data <laughs> to operate from and you're looking at models that are imaginary then we get scared of possibilities um as opposed to committing to a line of thinking um so you're right um the hope is that in november voters will see on the ballot um, an opportunity to pass independent redistricting. Independent redistricting would change the way that we redraw the lines around our districts every 10 years. Um, and, and, you know, in the leaked audio tapes, we heard three city council members and a labor leader um, call it their way because it wasn't independent. <laughs> there was an advisory committee that could make a recommendation. They were like, actually, I want this way. And all of a sudden, Councilman Nithya Raman had 40% different of a district um, to prevent her from pushing forward on renter protections, et cetera. Um, independent redistricting allows for a different body of people separate from the council to actually operate on their own recommendations and create those districts and removing the incentive to be corrupt um, that, that currently exists. Um, the, the, I think the thing that you're referencing is there's another um, commission that's being discussed at the moment called a, a, a charter commission. It's a different form of a commission that could reevaluate things in the city's charter, things like how often a council has to meet, um, things like how many city council districts there are, like very basic rules of how we govern ourselves. 
And right now, there's a, um, a current articulated proposal by council president and, and committee chair, uh, Paul Krikorian, that would have this commission, uh, a charter commission, be appointed by the mayor, by the council president, and then two neighborhood council people that they would choose. And then that group would select like three additional people to join them. And so there's not really room for the public to influence the outcomes of a charter commission that would rewrite the rules of how politics run. Um, and so I think the current move by a lot of organizations that are watching all of this is to say, no, not this, <laughs> right? Like, no, not a politically appointed <laughs> commission. Um, um, that commission right now, as proposed, would get to put things, uh, would get to recommend things back to council. And then council, again, not independently, council would be able to say like, oh, okay, like, do I like your proposal? Yes or no. And so their interests would still be taken into account. So in a world in which we could free up this commission, this charter commission from political appointments, allow it to have more public voice, we, you know, maybe we should let that particular commission put things directly on the ballot to take away council's possible corruption or incentives directly from that process. Um, and then lastly, right now they're proposing that these types of reforms would end up on a primary ballot in the future. 2026, for example, would be a June primary. We know what happens in primaries. We're in one right now. <laughs> this is a much smaller percentage of Angelinos who actually get to give consent around something. If we're looking for something that changes the rules of the city, um, I think a lot of groups are pushing toward a general election as a more representative, diverse set of voices to decide where a particular set of reforms should happen um, to our city's laws. And so, um, you know, I, I think over the next months or so, we're going to see what happens um, around how we change the laws of the city um, that make up how we govern ourselves. Yeah, and that, I guess, to to be determined, to be seen, um, if they can get this together. Because you're right, if we if we miss this opportunity in November to vote on some things to change to actually change this, we have to wait a long time. Um, for uh, like you said, the turnout of voters is kind of the most important part. We want the most people possible mm -hmm. to vote on it, and to be a the reason for people to go vote. I mean, I think that's, it, it would probably inspire a lot of people maybe who were maybe possibly disillusioned with um, our current situation. Um, but it is good to see that the issue keeps coming up. Um, I, I encourage, we're not going to go through all the people's stances, but I encourage you to, when you're doing your research, to look for who is willing to expand their council and take their own power away a little bit um, for the greater good, because it is, I think, really important, along with many other reforms, of course, but we'll get into those another day. Anything else anybody wanted to add or uh, tack on to the conversation? I just want to say thank you to Godfrey. I learned so much from I everything know. you said, so thank you for, for joining us tonight. <laughs> I learned so much. Well, we are so appreciative. Um, you can check out LA Forward's endorsements. Also check out their events um, for their ballot filling out parties. Um, and we'll link all these up in the show notes, as well as um, some other voter guides that we thought were worth reading and that we read when we were putting together this conversation. So thanks to everyone. Thanks to Godfrey. Thanks to Rachel. Thank you to Sophie Bridges for producing. 
We'll see you all next time. I wonder what is going on here. Is this space hell or is it paradise? And will we make it worse or make it nice? What's the forecasting?